All right, well, you can take your Bible and uh, turn to Genesis chapter 1 this evening. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, a few different texts tonight, and actually it's the kind of, of message where we're not going to be looking at a lot of Bible text, which I'm always very uncomfortable with, but I think you'll find it's certainly all biblically based. Uh, when you open your Bible, Genesis 1, the first thing we're introduced to in the first one is that God exists and He always has. And so we read in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated light from the darkness. God called the light day, the darkness he called night, and there was evening and morning the first day. And you know the story, I won't take time to read it tonight, but God speaks all of these things into existence. The first three days, uh, verse 5 talks about the first day, verse 8 the second day, verse 10 the third day, God is, is forming things, He's separating light from darkness, the firmament from the heavens, the waters above from the waters below, and He's forming things. In the beginning, on the fourth day, He's filling those things. He's putting the stars in the sky and the sun and the moon and he is filling the oceans with sea creatures. And he is filling the land with animals and plants. And then, of course, there's the capstone on this. On the sixth day, we read verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. Tonight I want to continue really our series that we've been looking at here on Sunday evenings with regard to humanity, creation to restoration. We've been looking at this aspect of who are we? Why has God made us? What's wrong with us? And how is God putting it all back together, as it were? Last week, we noted from Psalm 8 that God speaks of the significance of humanity. Uh, people tend to downplay that today, that we are just kind of an elevated creature to some degree, but not altogether different from the animal kingdom. And Psalm 8, of course, speaks directly against that false notion. Well, tonight, I want to advance a little bit further on it and ask this question, really, what, what are we? You can ask it this way, who are you? This week, uh, I was uh, listening to a podcast, and the person doing the podcast noted that Frank Borman, this astronaut, passed away November 7th. He was the age 95. Maybe that name doesn't mean anything to you. Frank was the commander of the Apollo 8 mission, which was a mission that was undergone by NASA in 1968. How many of you remember that? <laughs> All right, there's a few of you. Good. All right. The NASA mission of 1968. It was the mission of Apollo 8 to orbit the moon and return. Launched from Kennedy Space Center. There's this trajectory. It was to go around the moon, just make a single orbit, come back, 
and arrived safely at Earth. And there were three men in that orbiter. There's those last names. Borman, the man whose picture I showed you, Lavelle, and Anders. However, what, what most people who were alive then remember about the Apollo 8 mission was the fact that when that orbiter went around the moon, on its way to the moon, around the backside of the moon, and back to Earth, it was actually telecasting uh, live TV. You could go to your television set in black and white and see live images from this orbiter as it was headed toward the moon, as it went around the backside and came back. And it was broadcast to five different continents, and millions of people for the first time were seeing like from space, like they were in that orbiter looking back at the Earth. And one of the things that they were able to see through that broadcast was an Earth rise. Now we see sunrise, right? Because we're on the Earth and we see it rise above the horizon. Well, on the orbiter, they actually saw the Earth rise above the horizon of the moon, and that was broadcast. It wasn't in color then, right? So, um, but it was broadcast to millions of people. And they were able to see that. Well, on that day when they saw this moonrise and, and showed this video, Borman opened a Bible to Genesis chapter 1 and he read some of the words that I read to you tonight. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he read various portions from the book of Genesis. In fact, it was later that there was a stamp commemorating that, that earth rise and that mission of Apollo 8, and it looks like this, and you'll notice right there on the beginning, it says, in the beginning, God, because that was what was read on that telecast. Really, the surprising thing is that that was only 55 years ago, and it wasn't controversial. I mean, all the major networks picked it up and carried it uh, in several different continents. And it was like, this is something to be celebrated. We're reading from the book of Genesis about how God brought all of this into existence. And certainly not everyone uh, agreed with it, but the majority of people did and weren't offended. Now imagine if you did that today. What might the response be? It probably would never hit the airwaves, right? I mean, someone would have to do it on the side or you could get to it some other way, but it certainly wouldn't be championed nationally in our environment. So there was a great general understanding just 55 years ago of the origin of man and that somehow there is a God and he brought into existence everything that we see. No longer is that the case. In fact, just before I... I walked over from my office tonight, I read an article about the state of religion in Germany. Germany, think of the Reformation, think of Martin Luther, which was a hotbed of, of Bible truth, and today only 13% of people in Germany claim to be Bible-believing Christians. And that whole thing has just flipped. Well, when you have an environment like that, where now people are saying there really is no God, 
we kind of came from nothing over a long period of time. One thing that you lose track of, that you lose in those environments, is really the understanding of who human beings really are. How do I make sense of who I am with regard to everything else that's material in the world? And, and what's the difference? And so tonight, I want to kind of answer this question from the Bible, right? Who are you? If you had to describe yourself, what would you say? And I don't just mean the color of your hair, timbre of your voice, the things you like. I mean, really, as a human being, who are you? And there are three things that I want to give us tonight that the Bible actually tells us. Number one, we read this tonight, you are a direct creation of God. A direct creation of God. I read for you some of Genesis chapter 1, and what Genesis 1 does is, is it gives us the week of creation, the big picture. And when you come to Genesis chapter 2, it kind of zones in or zooms in on that sixth day, particularly the creation of man. So look at Genesis chapter 2 in verse 7. We read, then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. This is the creation of man, a direct act of God. Well, what does that mean, I'm a, a creation of God? What, is, what are the implications of that? There really are three. Number one, as a direct creation of God, you are not self-existent. Okay? You're not self-existent. In other words, your existence is derived from somebody else. Now, the, the common understanding in our secular age is that, yeah, we, we are derived from something pre-existent matter. And so you have this pre-existent matter that has always existed and given enough time over billions of years, it kind of somehow got together and over small steps got us to where we are today, to where now I am a human being. And that's the common understanding of the theory of evolution. Well, the Bible contrasts that obviously in saying that, that you didn't come about by natural processes or just even your own resources. You would have never come about were it not for God. And so we are a direct creation of God, and therefore, because of that, being made by God, we have personhood. So one of the most difficult things that evolutionists have to deal with in this theory of evolution, where we just kind of came from natural processes, is this. At what point in those natural processes does somebody become a person, or conscious, or self-aware? You know what self-awareness is? It means that I'm actually aware of myself outside of myself. I can stand up here and be very self-conscious because I'm thinking about how I might look before you. Is my hair okay? What's left of it? Right? Is there something on my face? Human beings have this self-awareness, this able, ability to project outside of ourselves and, and perceive ourselves in a situation Animals don't do that, right? You put that stupid hat on your dog and he runs around and, and he doesn't even know he looks stupid. But he does, and everybody laughs, but 
He doesn't care because he has no self-awareness. There's no understanding outside of himself. So where does self-awareness that's a part of personhood come from, this consciousness? Well, that only comes from somebody else who has personhood. God who has consciousness. And because we are made by God, He's the one that gives us that consciousness. It's part of what makes us human. So we are a direct creation of God. Because of that, we're not self-existent. We're dependent upon God. We get our, our consciousness from God. Okay? It also means this. We are not self-sustaining. Our, our existence, our sustenance on this earth is derived from somebody else. It's derived from God. Now, when you take God out of the equation, you put a lot of pressure on human beings to sustain themselves. And they begin to think, how can we possibly sustain ourselves? Look at the environment. It's, it's going this way, and it's up to us entirely to sustain it. And so there's a lot of energy that, that gets put forth into ecological crises and, and these different kinds of green energy things, which aren't all bad, don't misunderstand me. But the reason we see a huge push in those areas is because if I'm just an, a, 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 a result of natural processes and natural order, then it's also up to me to sustain the natural order. And so people get all worked up and up in arms about warming trends, carbon emissions. And again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be concerned about these things because we are to be stewards of creation. But if I take God out of the picture, I'm very concerned about that because that's all on me. And here's the funny thing. Do you realize that right now you are on a planet that is spinning a thousand miles an hour like this? Not only that, but that planet is orbiting our sun and it's circling our sun at the speed of 67,000 miles an hour. Not only that, but our Earth and Sun and other planets are a part of a solar system that are in that Milky Way. I showed you a picture of that last week, that Milky Way galaxy. And that is actually moving itself in that Milky Way galaxy at 514,000 miles an hour. And that Milky Way galaxy is circling among other galaxies at 1.3 million miles an hour. And when you add all of that up, Basically, everyone in this room is moving 520 miles per second. Every second you're moving 520 miles through a system filled with debris and asteroids and other planets and huge stars and black holes. And you're worried about carbon emissions. Right? Who, who's holding all that together? Who's keeping this impact from happening okay we're we're a direct creation of god we're not self-existent and he also holds it together he sustains us we're creatures and as a direct creation of god we are not all-knowing we are limited in our understanding of everything that God has made. But thankfully, 
God has spoken to us. And he has told us what we need to know. You ever notice when you read through Genesis 1, it says God said, God said, God said, and he's speaking things into existence. And then after he speaks everything into existence, he turns to Adam and Eve and God speaks to them. And he tells them certain things. What does he tell them? You're made in my image. You're to have dominion. You're to, you're to fill the earth. He tells them who he is, who they are, what he's made them to do, because we all are dependent upon God to know what's true. We're, crea- we're creatures. He's the creator. He, he tells us what is true and how to live in his world. So who are you? You are a direct, direct creation of God. You're not self-existent. You're not self-sustaining. And you're not all-knowing. And that's okay. Those are God's roles. And you can count on him to do those. But here's the other thing that we need to know about who we are. You are created in God's image. What does that mean? Do you realize that's the first thing God wants us to know about ourselves? We read it tonight. Did you see that in verse 27? So God created man, Genesis 1.27, in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. You are created in God's image. I, I remember, uh, I think I mentioned this this morning, the day my children were born. And when your children are born, you know, it's just, it's, you never forget that. And, and when that happens, I remember holding each child in my hands and thinking, here is a little image of God. That the image of God has been entrusted to my care. And I am to care for this little image bearer and teach them about the God in whose likeness they've been made. So what does it mean that we're in God's image? Well, here's the trouble with that. The Bible tells us it's true. Every human being is made in his image. The Bible never defines it. There's no verse where you can say the image of God is fill in the blank. So what we have to do is is kind of weave some things together. And there's some difference of opinion on this, but I think we can boil it down uh, to basically what I'm going to say are four things about being made in God's image. To begin with, I need to address this question. Is the image of God something we are, or is it something we do? Is it it simply substantive regard to just what it is to be human, or does it have to do with something I actually perform because I'm human? And there's been a debate about that really through the centuries among theologians. I fall on the side that says it's both. I actually am something different from all the rest of creation, and that enables me to do what God has given me to do. So let's start with the what we are. What does it mean to be made in God's image? Number one, I want you to note this. We're created in God's image, and that means you are a spiritual being. And what I mean by that is not simply that there's an immaterial part of you, but what I mean by that is that you have awareness of spiritual realities 
And I would define that as that you are a worshiping being. Human beings worship. When the archaeologist goes and digs through the piles of human existence, do you know what they find in every civilization? There's some aspect of worship. There's some acknowledgement of some kind of deity, be they one or many, but there's some awareness of this, and there's an attempt of appeasement toward that. And this is a distinctively human thing, right? Uh, We as human beings were were made to be awed, as it were. Uh, When I was a kid, I used to love to go to the Denver Zoo, and my favorite part of the Denver Zoo was to go to the place where they had the primates. Because... Uh, the, the monkeys in there, I was just fascinated with their athleticism. I mean, how high they jump, then they, they're swinging from things, you know, and they're moving so fast, and it's effortless, you know, and you can see their, their muscles bulging sometimes, those big gorillas, you know, and I'm just fascinated by their athleticism, and they're doing all of these things, and I'm amazed. I'm going, man, that is so cool. If only I could move like that. Do you know who wasn't impressed? The other primates. No big deal to them, right? They weren't sitting there holding up numbers, you know, for Fred as he, you know, hits the jungle gym. That's a 10, you know. That's a... Why? Well, being made in God's image means that I have a capacity to be, to be wowed by something great. And there's awareness of that. And it's because we're spiritual beings and we... We value things. We, we applaud things. And we place estimates and values on things. And that's a part of worship. Now, God says, worship me alone. Because I am of chief value just because I'm God. But we sometimes involve ourselves in idol worship. And not in a ancient context where we're like bowing down to little idols that we've made with our hands, but sometimes we place value on things and we place too much value on things and they become idols of our heart, like security. I must be secure. I must feel safe at all times. That's the highest value, me and my family's safety and I'll give anything for it. And not that it's a bad value, but it becomes an inordinate value when I value that even above God himself. I don't trust God to keep me safe. I must do it. That's my highest value. Why does that happen to human beings and not rabbits? Because we're made in God's image. We're spiritual beings. We, we worship, we value things. That could be true of pleasure or respect or approval because we're spiritual beings. This is what we do. You're a spiritual being. Not only that, you're a moral being. What does that mean? Well, here's a passage. Look at Ephesians chapter 4 because here's one that does speak of the image of God. Ephesians 4, we'll we'll dive right into the context where Paul is talking to Ephesian believers and he's saying, this is what you were, and so put this off 
You've been made new in Christ, so put these things off. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind, verse 23 of Ephesians 4. And then verse 24 of Ephesians 4, Paul says this, And put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true what? Righteousness and holiness. Those two things have to do with morality. What is right? Righteous. What is just? What is meeting my obligations? And holiness, what is distinct and in particular set apart from sin. And it says, put on this new self which is made in the likeness of God, the image of God after righteousness and holiness. And what Paul is saying is, you are a moral being and God wants you to live in an upright way that reflects a a holy morality. Now, how do we know we're moral beings? Well, if you go to Rockingham Mall and you're walking through the mall and there's an older lady and she's walking through the mall with her purse and somebody comes running from nowhere and knocks her down and rips that purse from her, and takes off and starts running through the mall, what's your response? And not only your response, what's the response of other people in that mall? I know most of you are thinking, I'm going to save the day and get the guy, right? My point is this. Your response is, that was wrong. And something needs to be done about it. And again, that's not just a Christian response, right? Thank God there's still morality in the human soul that says that's wrong. No one thinks everything is right and nothing is wrong. Nobody does. You push people far enough and eventually they have to admit, yeah, that would be wrong, a moral wrong. Now, in our world, moral perfection has been shattered because of the fall of man and removing God from the scene. This idea of morality is often downplayed, but the inclination still exists that there has to ultimately be a kind of right and wrong. There has to ultimately be some rules by which we live. The problem is, in a fallen world, people tend to make up their own morality. That is why, in our current society, to be intolerant of other people or to call what they do sin is the chief sin. But to commit adultery is an indiscretion. That is why, believe it or not, you can see what Hamas has done on October 7th, and there are some people actually justifying that and saying, well, you would do the same thing if you were them. Because there is this inclination of morality within us, but because of the fall, we all try to make our own standard. Does that make sense? But nevertheless, the point is, we all still hold this idea of morality. There is right and there is wrong, and nobody I don't know of anybody that wants to deny that. So 
So you and I are moral beings. That's what it is to be made in God, God's image. Thirdly, I want you to note this. You and I are relational beings. Relational beings. Why? Why are we relational? Because God is. God is a community. Father, Son, and Spirit, eternal in existence. There has always been community and warmth among the members of the Godhead. There's always been perfect love among the Father, Son, and Spirit. And when God created us, all that happened was that that overflowed. And he said, I'm going to share that with my creatures made in my image. And they too will be capable of love and community. You were made for community. You say, well, I would like to be a hermit. Well, try it for a while. See how you like it. I think I've mentioned this before, but there was a, there's a show called um, Alone, and it's about these people that they put in these you know, remote regions of the world with, with cameras and equipment and, and all their own. No one's with them. And they have to like survive all by themselves out in the wilderness for however many days. And the one that survives the longest wins. And, and, and when you see that, the, the thing that tends to, to get to these people most, these people are experts at survival. They have to to qualify for the show. But the thing that gets to them the most is that they're alone. And they begin to think about their family, they begin to think about their friends, they begin to think about what they're missing, and, and it grates on them to the point where that's the thing that makes them tap out and say, can't, I'm done. Why? You're a relational being. God made you for community. That's a part of being made in his image. We were made to love God and love others. That's why God tells us how to do that in 1 Corinthians 13. All right, now think about just that aspect of being made in God's image. Would your family members say that a loving relationship is your highest value? That you value that aspect of community because you are intentional about creating a loving environment in your home. Does that describe you? You're made in God's image. He's made you for that. These are things that we are, being made in God's image. We are spiritual, moral, relational. There's other things that we could probably add in there, but those are basic. That's what you are, substantive. And because that's what we are, it enables us to do what God wants us to do. And this is the final aspect of being made in God's image, and that is this. You are a reflecting being. That's the best way I could put it. Maybe it's not great, but I'll explain that, what I had in mind, okay? You're made to reflect God. You were made as a representative of God, believe it or not. When the Bible talks about image here in Genesis chapter 1, and it says, let us make man in our image, in those days when, when a king came into a kingdom and he became the ruler of that kingdom, 
he would actually make images of himself and station them in different places throughout his kingdom. And the idea was, is he was reminding everybody that he's the king, and this is the king that you serve. And when Genesis 1 tells us this, what it's saying is this, God is the great king. He owns it all. But what he does is fill the earth with his images, his image bearers. And they are to reflect the goodness of this great king on the earth. And that is what God has made us to do. How are we to do that? Look back at Genesis 1. God told Adam and Eve how to do that. Verse 27, it says, God created man in his own image, This is what distinguishes us from the animal kingdom. In the image of God, he created him. The end of verse 27, male and female, he created them. It's true of both man and woman, both equally made in God's image. And we're told this is what people are to do because they're made in God's image. Verse 21, verse 28, rather, God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, Subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, every living thing that moves on the earth. God says, here's how you will image me in the earth. You will represent me by having dominion over the earth. You're going to be my vice regents, as it were. Now think about that. Remember what I said in Genesis 1? The first three days, God formed the earth. He formed the heavens. He, He separated light from dark. And then what did he do? He filled those things. He put plants in there and animals and sun, moon, and stars. When God comes to Adam and Eve, he says, have dominion over the earth. Form it. Take its natural resources. Build something with it. Build great things. Build great cities with it. And do what? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill it. And that's how we're imaging God. We're taking the resources that God has put in our hands. We're having dominion over these things. And we're filling the earth. And this was God's intent. But primarily the idea is that you were made to radiate what God is to other people around you. That when people see you, they should see something good about God. Now, I don't image God very well. In fact, when people see me, they get a different perspective of God than they should. Because I am a creature, but I am a fallen creature. What I'm giving you is the prototype. This is how God originally designed us. And God is working to restore this image in us piece by piece, over time, patiently. And that's what this whole series is pretty much about. We are commissioned by God to represent him to other people on this planet. Well, what difference does this make? What difference does it make that I'm made in God's image? And I want to close with really just kind of two points of application. One we kind of hit at last week. 
Because we're made in God's image, respect for other image bearers is important. Do you know why our Constitution says, or why oftentimes people are prosecuted for murder? Constitution says that we have certain inalienable rights. What are they? Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Life is an inalienable right. If you take my life, you have defrauded me of that right. Therefore, you will be prosecuted. That's my understanding of jurisprudence in our nation. Why does the Bible say, if you take a life, it's wrong? Look at Genesis chapter 9. Look at Genesis 9 and look at verse 5. This is now after the ark. The waters have subsided. Noah comes off the ark with his family. And God speaks to them in verse 5 and says, And for your lifeblood, Noah, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God, what? Made him in his image. It's not he's defrauded him of his life. It's he has attacked God. The one in whose image, the one who bears God's image. And therefore, life for life, God had said. This is the idea that that being made in God's image, that's where we derive our value. It's an intrinsic value. And therefore, murder is wrong because it's an attack on God. Speaking against people is wrong. James chapter 3 says, we have a tongue. And with that tongue, one hand, we bless people. We speak encouragement to them. And he says, on the other hand, we curse people with our tongue who are made in the image of God. And James says, that shouldn't be happening. Can can one river produce both clean and foul water? And he's saying, look at your heart. What's in your heart? If you're cursing people in God's image, it's a heart problem. But the point is, is that you shouldn't be cursing people in God's image because you're attacking God. Because we're made in God's image, there should be respect for all human life. We should not be degrading other people. I don't mean to be descript, but the blatant objectifying of women in our society is a blatantly ugly attack on God's image. Everywhere you go, women are objectified. And it's promoted that way. You're nothing but your looks and your body. That's an attack on God's image. Your value lies not in those things. It lies in the fact that you're made in his image. When we remove God from society, it's why little cultural gentleness remains. And people hide behind screens and shoot off tirades with their fingers. Because there's no concern that the person on the other end of that email is made in God's image.
what difference does it make that we're made in God's image? We should respect all human beings and all human life. But secondly, it has everything to do with identity. That's a hot word, isn't it? Identity. We're in identity crisis. What is your identity? How do I identify? Well, identity has to do with who you are and who you think you are and what I think is most valuable. What is the most valuable thing about me? And people struggle with that. Human beings struggle with that. Think of a woman who's a stay-at-home mom. And she has four kids and, you know, four kids under six years old. Bless her heart. And she's looking at another pile of laundry and it just keeps coming. And she's thinking to herself, is this who I am? I mean... The work is never done. I'm constantly meeting other people's needs and shuffling people back and forth and and everyone has a need and I have very little precious time to myself and then I go on Facebook and all my friends show how they have it all together and how everything's perfect in their life and that's not me. I'm worthless. And she's tempted to think that my domestic life of servitude has no value. I'm not valuable. You don't understand the image of God. You don't understand that you're not just made up of things that you do, those good things that you do. You were made to image God in that home in a particular way and have profound impact beyond your imagination. On the other hand, take the doctor. A doctor who remembers wanting to be a surgeon from a very young age. That's all that he's ever wanted to do. And that's what what drove him in his high school career to work so hard and throughout college to be so diligent about his academics to get into the best schools and have the best education. And he's devoted all of his life to that and poured all of his energy into that. And he remembers the day that he first donned that lab coat and it had inscribed in his lapel, doctor, doctor so-and-so. And he's beaming with pride, I've made it. And then five years into his practice, because he's burnt out with long hours, has had very few close friends, No church community because he just didn't have time for that. And he's sitting up once again late night in his office and he's saying, this is everything I've worked for. This is what I thought was my identity. He has forgotten the image of God. There's nothing wrong with being a doctor but if you're trying to derive your identity out of that, it will never satisfy you. Because you were made in God's image. You were made for bigger things. This could be true of the young person shuffled from home to home in foster care, thinking that they were never of value because no one ever really wanted them. 
and they'll never be anything. And they are ripped with depression and despair. And what they have forgotten is you're made in God's image. And that's what makes you valuable. It can also be true of the political candidate who has a huge following and overestimates their value because they have all the numbers. That's not what makes you valuable. And if you're pinning your hopes on that value, that bubble will burst. But you're made in God's image. And that's your identity. I'm an image bearer of God. So many people are claiming their identity. I'm this, I'm this, I'm this list. I put these things together. As God's people, you know where we should begin? I'm an image bearer of God. That's who I am at my core. I don't do it well. But by God's grace and through Christ, he's helping me to do that well. And I can do that wherever I am, in my home, in the workplace, in my community. This is what God has given me to do. But we struggle with that. Why do we struggle with that? Here's why. Because thirdly, you're a fallen creature. You and I are fallen. And I don't have time to develop that tonight. Lord willing, next Sunday we will. That's why we struggle. What happened in this fall? What happened when Adam sinned? And in Adam's fall, we sinned all. What did it do to this image of God? And for that, we're going to have to look in ensuing weeks. All right? What I want you to take away...